la guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of baffling combustions and my name is sam truett i am sparrow and my name is andrew mccarran and today after some hiatus we're going to plunge into bell hooks's essay theory as liberatory practice and the presentation of this essay or the introduction of this essay is through the offices of Andrew. Um, many thanks, because I think that our original intention with this podcast after long delay was to talk about the marching orders for these sessions and, you know, to realign ourselves or potentially to uncover a hidden a purpose that we have always had but hadn't fully articulated or to find kind of like a slightly newer path that we might take and this essay seems to me like a great place to start with all sorts of continuities to what we've already been doing but also with this real emphasis on um the intermingling of theory and practice, and, and that they constitute a single structure, uh, kind of, and um, and also in relation to this word uh, pain, to mm. this, which I think is um, something that we're going to want to be exploring. So, Andrea, I was wondering maybe you could give us a little bit of a wrap because I think that you have the most familiarity with this essay. I think it's part of your pedagogy. Um, not really. Um, I happed upon it by coincidence. Uh, I, I'm certainly aware of the work of uh, Bell Hooks, and I had taught an essay of hers called um, Coming into Class Consciousness uh, previously. And I did know the book from which this essay was taken, Teaching to Transgress, which was published, I believe, first in the mid-1990s, maybe 1994, 1995. Bell Hooks, by the way, uh, recently passed on. I think she died yeah. last year or maybe the year before, but certainly within the, the, the past two years, so recently. And I read this um, this essay, and I, it reminded me of our podcast. Um so I, I just thought, reiterating what you've already said, Sam, that would be an interesting mm. um, point of departure. I like how she defines theory, that every time mm. people get together to to discuss some 
form of pain or to imagine um, the world anew, to imagine a new sort of world, that uh, doing so is a theoretical act, an act in theory, and that there's a responsibility ethically to try to theorize in a way that um, leads to or suggests some practical application. And I was aware of the fact that over our podcasts, we often theorize, uh, conceptualize this or that, but almost universally in every session, we we do think about the implications of um, the ideas we're discussing for the lived experience. Um, so I, I just I appreciated her rather broad definition of theory, and I, I like the the two um, touchstones of pain and healing as uh, touchstones that have a, a broad uh, appeal mm. that it brings us together. Uh, you know, people experience all sorts of pain. Um, some pain similar and some pain different, but it's something we have in common. It's part of our condition. And I do think that we spend a lot of time individually and collectively thinking about what to do with that pain, whether to keep it, whether to try to change it into something else, to heal it therapeutically. So I like the two touchstones. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, it was published in 1991. 1991. Okay, so early 90s. Yeah, I believe first publication and then, you know, reprinted in various anthologies. Okay. Yeah. This is the moment at which Sparrow is going to jump in. Sparrow is refraining from the theoretical act. <laughs> I mean, the thought that I, the note I just wrote to myself is how does therapy relate to pain? And I realized that I had used the word therapy instead of theory. I meant to say, theory, but instead I said therapy, which maybe has some meaning. What is the relation? Is therapy theory? Is theory therapy? But anyway, to to does she explain? And I read the essay, but it was a few days ago, and I have no memory of anything. But um, does she explain what is the relationship between the pain and the theory? Is it that a group of people are discussing pain, and then they're saying, well, you know, God gives us never gives us a difficulty we can't overcome and or something like that it finds an explanation for the pain uh, or a or a way out of the pain that that's that's the theory where what is the theory exactly how does the theory exactly relate to pain i don't quite get it exactly. i guess the pain is the point of departure it's the starting point uh, i wrote down how does therapy relate to pain but then I realized I got the word wrong. I meant theory, not therapy, which might be an interesting, uh, what's the word, Freudian slip. Talk about a Freudian slip. It's about psychoanalysis. Um, so how does uh, theory relate to pain? So in other words, mm. um, so people are talking about their pain. Where does the theory fit in? Does the theory tell you, how to get out of your pain? Does it try to explain why there is pain? Because there's an all-knowing God that inflicts pain on us for some higher reason. I don't quite see the the causal relationship between pain and fear. Mm. Well, I think that um, you know there is a liberation that one experiences when you can identify the 
pain or can see the pain. You know, theory is derived from that Greek word thea, uh, you know, from which we also get theater. Um, You know, so those are interlinked, that sort of theater theory are part of the same. And and in the Greek sense, it means something close to view or spectacle. Um, So that if you're able to see the pain, if you're able to identify the pain, then you're able to get beyond it by being able to see it. That means that you're seeing past it or seeing around it. Um, do you see it? Um, do, do you see what I'm seeing or saying what I'm seeing? Yeah, it makes sense. Seeing what I'm saying. Yeah. Like a, like an AA. Hmm. Like when, when, you know, a bunch of people gather who have experienced the pain of, of alcoholism. Um, and yeah, they try to see, try to understand what it is, where it comes from, um, its form. Um, by talking about it, but by, by sure, I, I've never been to an AA meeting. Perhaps you two have, but uh, isn't the premise that you, or the rather met the method rather that you go around and share your story? You, yeah. So when somebody stands up and they give their first name, there's I was just watching fairly recently. Uh, Norm Macdonald was saying, uh, you know, it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. Somebody gets up and says, "I'm Frank." I'm an alcoholic. And and uh, then they tell their story. And Norm MacDonald says, that's not really anonymous. I mean, <laughs> that's his name. Right. It's not his last name. As then there is theorized that it, that is introduced in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, by means of the big book and reading over the 12 steps and the vast commentaries around these steps. Um, I believe that the 12 steps constitute a theory of transformation, um, almost alchemical. Of course, it was influenced by Jung, um, whom the author of the big book, I guess it was Bill, you know, like one of the euphemisms for alcoholics is, you know, you're, are you a friend of Bill? And they say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I am a friend of Bill. Huh. And that is uh, a way of, um, again, using a name to cross that anonymous barrier. And that and- is a theory. You know, the Alcoholics Anonymous definitely is working by something that everyone would call a theory. There's a theory. What is alcoholism? It's a disease. <laughs> and it's it's a disease that you can't um, often cure on your own. You can never cure it. Yeah, you can never yeah. cure it. And you can't do it. It's hard to do on your own that you really need. You, you, you yeah. need your fellow AA members, your community, your sober community, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I don't know what the word is. They wouldn't. I don't think they would say cure. I think you... You're an alcoholic forever. You're always recovering, recovering, alcoholic, recovering, recovering alcoholic, right? You can help recover. So one person at a time. So it's not sitting in a circle. It's more like a little bit like a lecture where one person gets up and tells their story. And then um, there's applause, as I recall. And then another person tells their story. And I think that. 
the story, the storytelling, which I, Bell Hooks, I think, um, would would feel comfortable saying is theoretical on some level, um, has a healing capacity to it, right? Isn't that why so many people who are recovering continue uh, attending AA meetings, even if they haven't touched a drop of alcohol in months, years, or decades? Right. I mean, it's a little unclear what exactly is the source of the healing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I did go to one meeting and then I went to a adult children of alcoholics, I think, meeting once. And uh, or one of those things where you're like a family member is an alcoholic. Uh, Al-Anon? Maybe it was Al-Anon that I went An to. Al-Anon meeting? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know if exactly listening to the story is is exactly healing it's a little unclear it's a whole it's it's something the whole whatever gestalt of it the whole gestalt of 12 step is you know it helps you be in remission mm. it doesn't when through listening you are reminded that you are not alone mm. and that has a healing quality i would say um uh, for for people mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of interesting because like i the one thing i remember Actually, what I did was kind of a terrible thing that I had a column for a local newspaper in uh, northern Manhattan in Inwood. And sometimes it was for both Inwood and Washington Heights. And I had a weekly column for years, like seven years, eight years. I never got paid for it, but I would produce this column every week. And I was always looking for new topics. And I got the idea, I'll go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and I'll just write down what happens and then I'll write that up as a column. And that's really forbidden. You know, you're not supposed to ever publish anything. I didn't know that. So anyway, but I do remember that this woman, uh, I can sort of see her in my mind, this woman on stage saying, I was a, a hide it, sneak it, forget it type of alcoholic. She had like a word for it. You know, like a kind mm-hmm. that has like a little bottle of whiskey. You know, she's kind of a normal looking housewife, but she's got this bottle of whiskey secreted inside some drawer. And when nobody's looking, she'll take it out and drink it. So I, it struck me that, I mean, I'm just thinking about it now. I think like part of it is, well, you go there. I'm an alcoholic too, but I'm a different kind of alcoholic. So you see the commonality and you also see the differences. You see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm just speculating that maybe that's part of the beauty of of AA is that there's, you know, there's a million ways to be an alcoholic. (laughs) I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, that we've landed on AA, um, which, you know, I would remind our listeners when the Dalai Lama was asked, what's the greatest thing that Western civilization has produced? And the Dalai Lama said, Alcoholics Anonymous. Is that so? Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. And but what I think is interesting is that I'm going to read the first paragraph of Bell Hooks's essay, and I think you'll find that it's like it it really does flow into that which would bring somebody to the threshold of an AA meeting, like Sparrow. So it would go. So it goes. I came to theory because I was hurting. The pain with me, within was so intense that I could not go on living. Mm. That's a common trope of AA, you know, hitting rock bottom. I came to th- theory desperate, 
wanting to comprehend, to grasp, grasp what was happening around and within me. Most importantly, I wanted to make the hurt go away. I saw in theory then a location for healing. A location for healing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting that's interesting. Word. Yeah. And then uh, and then uh, if we're going to just look um, to the next uh, paragraph, she quotes from Terry Eagleton. And this is where the first glimmering of the sympathy that this essay has to our symmetry, has to our, to baffling combustions, you know, where he speaks of children as the best theorists, uh, that they, you know, don't accept our routine social practices, uh, insist on posing to those practices embarrassing and general and fundamental questions. Isn't that what we do? Regarding oh, them yes. with a, and then quote, you're not quote, but, you know, emphasis, wondering estrangement. I would hope that, you know, that our time is uh, redolent with wondering estrangement, with the uh, ungefähr. Isn't that the German word for uncanny? I thought the word was uncanny. So, um, for oh. monstrous and uncanny, which monster actually comes up then in the next paragraph, uh, oh. in which her parents characterize her as a monster. Wait, what's wondering uh, estrangement mean to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I miss that too. Oh, what, what, is that what kids do? They have wondering estrangement? Regarding them with a wondering estrangement, which we adults have long forgotten. Uh, yeah. Since they do not yet grasp our social practices as inevitable, they do not see uh, why we might not do things differently. Ah, <clears throat> so they're estranged um, from the so the normative social practices of the adult world. They're one. They're wondering in the way that a Buddhist wonders with beginner's mind. Like you, you go into an elevator and everybody stands towards the door of the elevator. They're going up to the 13th floor. They could be spinning around. They could be dancing. But everybody just has uh -huh. to always look right in front of them, and they always have to look at that door. Why? Why is that? That's something a kid might ask. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I love the Terry Eagleton quote. I, 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 I really appreciate the notion of uh, children being natural theorists. Makes yeah. complete sense. And also, I think that's another bond that I just made a note about uh, between uh, uh, Bell Hooks and uh, AA is um, there's kind of an anti-intellectualism uh, that I see in the piece. Or an anti, saying, yeah, sorry. You know, she's saying you don't need to have a college degree uh. to be a theorist. You can be a child and be a theorist. Anyone can be a theorist. And I think... There's something, one of the great things about AA is it's uh, democratic and it's not, it doesn't require um, education to to partake in it. It's it's sort of non-hierarchical in that way. It's, you know, you, whether you're smart or unsmart makes no difference. You're welcome into the circle. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of, everybody's kind of equal. Yeah, she doesn't... Um... Mm -hmm. Appreciate the el the elitism, um, the insular quality, the of excessive 
scholasticism of uh, right of the ivory tower tower when there's no um, connection to how everyone lives their lives when there's no invitation for um, um, a range of voices. Yes, she makes this point about early feminism, how early feminism was all about practice. It was all about how can you change your life? How can how can we all change society and change our lives in practical day to day ways? And then as feminism got kind of co-opted by the uh, academic world, uh, it had everything had to be sort of proven in uh, the sort of intellectually accepted way. And feminism became more and more abstract and more and more not about anybody's daily life and i think she's saying it became more kind of useless because it was you know it, it may make sense in a theoretical in an intellectual way like you could what you do when you learn when you get a phd you, you learn how to as you guys know you learn how to um, footnote everything you say. You, you have to find a precedent for everything you say. So feminism became much more logically justified, I would imagine, as it got more academic, but less and less about like, what do you say to your husband when he says, I'm too tired to do the dishes? <laughs> and you both have the same job, you both work the same amount. He's too tired. That means you got to do it. What do you do about that? I have no idea myself. Yeah, I mean, in this paragraph, she speaks of a kind of narcissistic self-indulgent practice, gap theory practice, so as to perpetuate class elitism. This sort of addresses what you were saying. And then further on, she writes, hence, any theory that cannot be shared in everyday conversation cannot be used to educate the public. So I think that that um, sort of sing, seems to sing to what you're saying, Sparrow, is that, um, you know, theory should be, a, we should be able to speak of it um, in everyday discourse. Um, you know, which interestingly, so much of that which controls our lives now is beyond a possibility of speaking of it, um, a.k.a. this device that we're speaking through now, the computer. Um, for most of us, you know, what's happening behind the screen, as it were, is a complete uh, mystery and, um, you know, uns unspeakable. Unspeakable. Reminds me of this and story. Real. I don't know if I ever told that this on the podcast. It's like my favorite literary story of uh, that Basho supposedly he said. Did I tell this story? That Basho said when he writes a new haiku, he goes to his neighbor and he's talking to his neighbor, and he'll put the haiku in his conversation. He won't say it's a haiku. He'll just say it as if it's his speech, normal conversation. And if the if the neighbor says, that's a really good new haiku, then he knows it's a bad haiku. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it no, sounds I... like poetry, it's no good. It should sound like normal talk. And if you're talking to your neighbor uh -huh. and your neighbor says, oh, that's really good theory you've got going there, then you know it's a bad theory. <laughs>
What's interesting um, in terms of silence, uh, Sam? Your your comment made me think of the uh, what Wittgenstein writes at the end of the um, what is his first work? Um, what is it? The Tractatus. Tractatus. The Tractatus. Mm-hmm. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Mm-hmm. Whereof what? I'm sorry. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. What we cannot say in words, we must pass over in silence. Mm-hmm. But isn't there, there's that moment um, in the Bell Hooks uh, essay, and unfortunately I don't have the uh, printout in front of me, but um, where she writes about the, uh, the activist meeting of black women, maybe uh, all mm. academics or affiliated with the academy, and one woman who's very critical of theory as being elitist and divorced from the everyday. Um, and then at the end of the meeting, they join hands and they share this moment of silence that uh, I think is part of the the enactment of theory for bell hooks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's room for what cannot be spoken mm-hmm. of, what, 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 what cannot be said. That's part of theory, you're saying, in a way. That's part of theory, yes. Mm-hmm. Theory isn't only a spoken act or a written act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, and she does mention silence. The word silence does come up and in relation to this meeting. And then she she goes on to write, in many black settings, I've witnessed the dismissal of intellectuals, the putting down of theory and remained silent. I've come to see that silence is an act of complicity, one that helps perpetuate the idea that we can engage in revolutionary black liberation and feminist struggle without theory. Like many insurgent black intellectuals whose intellectual work and teachings is often done in predominantly white settings. I'm often so pleased to be engaged with a collective group of black folks that I do not want to make waves or make myself an outsider by disagreeing with the group. Um, And then she goes on when, you know, intellectuals are devalued. um, You know, I have in the past rarely contested prevailing assumptions. And then she goes on, I thought it was important to ready widely. I would risk being seen as uppity or as lording it over. Mm. I have often remained silent. So in this case, rather than passing over that which we do not understand, we you know, we must pass over in silence, she actually does understand and is our, you know, is saying I remain silent because I didn't want to uh, make trouble. Just so happy to have a bunch of uh, black women talking together about a, you know, possible, you know, possibilities of change and action. So the silence is strategic. The silence plays a role in the uh, the partnership, the exchange, mm. right? The collective energy. But she regrets mm-hmm. the silence. The silence is a is act of complicity and act of acquiescence to this anti-intellectual um, premise 
yeah, I could. I thought that was a very poignant uh, yeah. story, but it really made me think. Well, I think that there is really a class issue here. That when people say we don't need theory, it's it's a little bit kind of like the, the Trump revolution is sort of connected to this. It's kind of a a revolution against elites of any kind, and you know what they call elites, and it's kind of like. Well, theory is the is the work of upper middle class people, and who've been to college and uh, read all these books, and I think what Bell Hooks is is saying, no, that's not what theory is. We need theory, but it doesn't have to be, you know, um, upper class theory. It's, you know, we're crazy not to have theory, but we're also crazy if all theory only comes from, you know. Uh, people that have been certified by the academy er and basically have, you know, upper middle class or middle class lives. That's right. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that seems that seems true. And I think also there's an interesting dichotomy between that which is written and that which is oral. Um, that relates to theory and practice passage. That I that is not too long that I that I could read in which yeah. these things come up. Um, critical reflection on contemporary production of feminist theory makes it apparent that the shift from early conceptualizations of feminist theory, which insisted that it was most vital when it encouraged and enabled feminist practice begins to occur, or at least becomes most obvious with the segregation and institutionalization of the feminist theorizing process in the academy, with the privileging of feminist thought, theor feminist thought forward slash theory over oral narratives, which mm. also uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the idea of the oral narrative. But, you know, this dichotomy between the written and the oral, um, I think is also signatory to what she's saying. And that there is a kind of, um, and what I think Baffling Combustions is kind of about, is to work with the inherent theoretical, practical, and dare I say, poetic nature of speech, of mm. um talking, you know, circling back to Basha. Yeah, that's nice. That's yeah, that really, is really nice. She doesn't talk about the aesthetic, but I think it's kind of uh, hidden within this essay. And I do want to thank Andrew for giving us this essay. And I really loved it. And it really opened up a lot of ways of thinking for me. It made me think, well, Andrew clearly is a great teacher. I always suspected he was a great teacher, but you know, he's a great teacher of me giving me this uh, essay oh. to read. Hey, you're too, kind you're of, I shouldn't even say this because I'll get, you know, arrested by the uh -oh. morality police. But, you know, I had a kind of faint um, sort of uh, disaffection from Bell Hooks. I just thought she was one of these modern people where everything is about uh, who is marginalized and who is privileged and all this dumb whatever you call this dumb politics that young people have now. And in fact, you know, it was 
not it was kind of the opposite of that it was she was really kind of making a case for just normal human beings being great philosophers <laughs> yeah never, and, mm-hmm. yeah and her um in terms of the orality one thing that i really appreciate about this essay and a lot of her writing is just you know just the the aesthetic of the everyday speech that she captures in her sentences um mm. you know it's uh it, she does not cultivate the opaque um it's not overly scholastic it it almost sounds like uh the transcript of a conversation there's something so conversational about it and i'm pretty sure that's purposeful in fact uh i think in a piece that i read of hers called talking back um where she reminisces about her upbringing in an african-american baptist community in the south um she writes about how she abandoned her vernacular for a period of time uh, mm. when she she was at Stanford and then uh, beyond Stanford, getting her uh, graduate degrees, only to return to um, the, 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 the this orality in her scholarship. Um, she talks about mm. this essay. She talks about how uh, she is um, sort of uh, discriminated against. Uh, in academia because they don't think that her books are uh, serious enough and and she says like some of her friends have trouble putting them on the curriculum because they just seem too much like self-help books or something right (laughs) too Mm. readable crazy so i guess you know for me in terms of how this essay helps us to helps inform and further and open what we do together Mm. um you know that's kind of the where i want to lean into is um there's this sentence uh that i that i'd like to read that i that i think is a is could be a question Uh, I insisted that we needed new theories rooted in an attempt to understand both the nature of our contemporary predicament and the means by which we might collectively engage in resistance that would transform our current reality. And And I feel that at the back of what we do is... indications of what I would construe as our contemporary predicament and that we we do seem to engage in in forms of resistance and of of try of of trying to get ourselves out of the contemporary predicament I mean do we feel that our podcast make some attempt to collectively engage in resistance that might transform our current reality? I think so. I think so too. I, yeah, I think in just asking questions about things and um, working together to uh, look at topics from a new perspective. Mm-hmm. And introducing our own experience. Introducing our own experience, sharing all of that as a political narrative. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that we kind of refuse to have some simplistic politics, I think, as a group, you know, we're not, we're trying to avoid some kind of 
dualistic politics, I feel, you know, where we're like, we're the good guys and the other guys are the bad guys. I, I think that's a political stance. I I also think that and I, I, I'm brought to the work of, um, led to the work of Gertrude Stein, that uh, her famous uh, essay, Composition is Explanation. Did we do a podcast on that? Or three of them. Well, I think we did. Yeah, we yeah. did. Maybe two. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's very hard to see the contemporary. It's, it's it, you know, we have a sense of what the past was and we have an anticipatory sense of maybe what's to come in the future. But the uh, the present remains um, uncharted. It, it is not easy to name the pain of the contemporary moment. It's not easy to, mm-hmm. th- to theorize from the location of the contemporary. And I think that uh, because mm-hmm. so much of it remains unsaid or has yet to be composed or seen, um, we need one another. Mm. Uh, we need, we need, mm. it's, it's a collective, um, it's a collective act. There's this uh, quotation mm. in uh, the bell hooks and it's a quotation from the feminist Patricia Williams. It comes from her essay on being the object of property. And I'm just going to read it because I think it pertains to what I'm saying. There are moments Mm -hmm. in my life when I feel as though a part of me is missing. There are days when I feel so invisible that I can't remember what day of the week it is. When I feel so manipulated that I can't remember my own name. Mm -hmm. When I feel so lost and angry that I can't speak a civil word to the people who love me best. These are the times when I catch sight of my reflection in store windows and am surprised to see a whole person looking back. I have to close my eyes at such times and remember myself, draw Mm. an internal pattern that is smooth and whole. And then Bill Hooks writes, it is not easy to name our pain, to theorize from that location. And I think uh, through the podcast, Mm. sometimes we offer one another these reflective surfaces to see a whole or some semblance of a whole that we wouldn't see if we were just on our own. Hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah. Like this idea of the location for healing is also the location of suffering. I mean, that seems like um, an obvious statement, but the location of where the pain is is also the location of where the healing is because you can't heal something that's whole, right? So I think that that's super interesting. Yeah, see, um, see, seeing seeing it, naming it, um, right? It is it becomes the uh, becomes a healing, a therapeutic act. Well, it's mm-hmm. the diagnosis stage, I would say, of the medical procedure. You know the which is often uh, overlooked. Mm-hmm. Diagnosis is a pretty key factor if you're going to cure something. You have to figure out what it is first. And I think mm-hmm. you could say and you that's, know, that, that our mm-hmm. culture as a whole is like undiagnosed. Mm. And that diagnosis is something. the uh, and that diagnosis is the theoretical application, right? Yeah, it's the pra- theory and practice is uh, Mm. sort of somewhere in between a a science and an art diagnosis, it seems to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just one thing I would say is 
stepping forward from this point, I think that maybe our practice could include more of this vocabulary and maybe, you know, just this word pain. I think I want to, I want to locate the pain. I think that that's something we want to, want to try to do going forward. And I think also this sort of, uh, of leaning into healing, of finding the pain and of healing. I think that that's, um, you know, I would think that you, Andrew, as a psychologist, you know, would find that very sympathetic. And, um, and I think also, if we, if we, if we seek out the pain, then it also will, I feel, curb some of our tendency to just be a little too tired, maybe. To be a little too what? Too, I didn't miss that. A little too what? Oh, a little too top heavy, you know, a little bit too sort of in our uh, heads, you know? Oh, yeah. And yeah. yeah. Um, right, right. That, that, that's just be, you know, one kind of takeaway that I think from this essay, you know, that we want that light to shine um, forward for us. And that takes courage. And, you know, I, I know my, my Jungian therapist is always encouraging me to name the pain to go there and thinks I'm too much in my head and um, Mm -hmm. it is um, I think something we do many of us do as a defense strategy I Sam what you just said really Mm -hmm. dovetails beautifully with the uh, uh, the final paragraph of of the essay so I'm going to read that aloud right now Um, Mari Matsuda told us today that quote we are fed a lie, that there is no pain in war, end quote. She told us that patriarchy makes this pain possible. Catherine McKinnon reminded us that, quote, we know things with our lives and we live that knowledge beyond what any theory has yet theorized, end quote. Mm. Making this theory is the challenge before us, for in its production lies the hope of our liberation. In its production lies the possibility of naming all our pain, of making all our hurt go away. If we create feminist theory, feminist movements that address this pain, we will have no difficulty building a mass-based feminist resistance struggle. Mm -hmm. There will be no gap between feminist theory and feminist practice. Mm Yeah, I wanted to say, because I've been about to mm. say this for the last 10 minutes or an hour or something, that mm. uh, I was very struck by feminism as the sort of central theory that she's talking about here. Mm-hmm. And and I consider myself a feminist. In recent years, I'm more and more see myself as a feminist. And, you know, it's sort of gotten to the point where for a guy to call himself a feminist is almost unacceptable but i that's Mm. how i feel you know i i think it's a complex situation to be a male feminist but it's what i want to (laughs) be and i think you know i was thinking well maybe that is in some way the unspoken mission of our podcast is you know the three of us 
I think are all struggling to be feminists. I, if I may speak hmm. for all of us, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be and feminist men. I think one way we do it is, and this is all over the bell hooks piece, is just the, you know, the 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 collective nature that we we're really scripting collective essays. Hmm. Mm-hmm. collaborative essays um, in an uh, oral key that mm-hmm. try to discover something or suggest something of, of meaning that's uh, mm-hmm. accessible to, to, to all, that's not um, um, guilty of unresponsive elitism, mm. um, and that thinks with both the mind and to quote St. Augustine, the intellective organ of the heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. And one thing that I've theorized about the patriarchy is that it is inherently competitive. That it, you know, it's hard for two men, three men, a hundred men. Now you interrupted me, Sparrow. Ah! No, I just, I'm just joking. Sorry. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> Um, you know, it's hard for men, to, speaking of which, to to be in the same room without some kind of unspoken uh, hierarchy or competition. Who's going to win? Right. And I think what we're trying to do in this three-angled triangle of conversation is to try to find a way that we can all win, which may be in itself kind of what you were just saying, Andrew you know, might be a feminist act in a sense. Hmm. Right on. Yeah. I love what you're saying, Sparrow. And Sam, I love what you said. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's exciting for us to like rededicate ourselves to some higher goal as the three of us. And I got to say this Catherine McKinnon quote um, really seems to be kind of a beacon um, to what we're talking about. We know things with our lives and we live that knowledge. We know things with our lives and we live that knowledge beyond what any theory has yet theorized. Super interesting. Making this theory is the challenge before us. I feel that that is the challenge before us. Um, this knowledge, we live that knowledge, and it's and it's a theory that is not yet written, um, not yet theorized, and then you know, and then making this theory is is the challenge before us. This, I, I I have a difficult time. Um, exactly articulating that to which she points well it's a uh, knowledge that is yeah go ahead i just uh, returning to gertrude stein's essay composition as explanation right the, there's that famous sentence uh um composition is there and we are here <laughs> Compos- the composition is there meaning in the and we are here meaning what does that mean exactly? <laughs> that the language to explain what's happening, the music of what's happening, um, is aspirational. It's a work in progress. Hmm. But the the forms of life, 
from which that language um, emerges is very much present. It's what we're I think it relates to the Catherine McKinnon. Mm -hmm. It's what we're living with our lives beyond theory or before theory. I feel like I've muddied. We we live it now, but we don't quite know what it is, kind of. We haven't quite named it or can't quite see it or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I love until that. until we catch that reflection in the store window, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're surprised at what we see, you know, and then we close our eyes and remember ourselves, draw an internal pattern that is smooth and whole. Hmm. Yeah. So, there need there need not be some um, you know uh, totalizing thesis. Yeah, or the totalizing thesis keeps. I mean, I think the real concept of um, the, uh, what do you call it, um, dialectic, you know, that Hegel is talking about, is mm. that there's a constant transformation. It's kind of, it's almost like there's, the minute you articulate something, then there's the counter, there's the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis, and then you you keep it keeps kind of merging and and diverging again the the the, the thoughts and and the life also hmm yeah i know i was i was also aware that there is a dialogical component to this or a dialectical component um and that she's closing you know she also is um Potentially, that um, dialectical structure is argumentative mm-hmm. and is potentially itself, you know, one of the principal means by which the knowledge machine operates is thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, which leads to you know, new thesis, antithesis, you know, et cetera. And, um, and that that may be part of that patriarchal war machine. Um, and that may, you know, she speaks of no gap between th- feminist theory and feminist practice, mm. that there is a dialectic between practice and theory, but, you know, going back and forth, but actually there is no dialectic that there both operating within seeking to name our pain and and that naming itself which is theoretical makes all our pain go away mm. and that that uh, pain isn't uh located um purely in the the individual we live in this uh uh society where illness narratives um, pain narratives are pretty common, but I think the kind of pain that Bell Hooks is referring to is pain that's um, collectively experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, pain that is common to a larger group of people than just one person. She writes um, toward the end of the essay, there is no one among us who has not felt the pain of sexism and sexist oppression, the anguish that male domination can create in daily life, the profound and unrelenting misery and sorrow. 
so the the pain does have to be um, um, I think collectively experienced that it's not um, mm-hmm. you know an exercise in narcissism or mm-hmm. uh, or some individualistic um, therapeutic uh, expression that is more about uh, self-aggrandizement or um, right um, the elevation of the self to some high altar of significance there's a populist quality to the pain and i think that's part of its uh feminist character mm-hmm. i mean i would i sort of took from the essay but i'm not sure this is right that um, mm. that you can start anywhere with any pain and that eventually you know there's a kind of social element to to everything you know like if you have indigestion there's, for example, um, you know, there's there's all sorts of reasons for that. Pepto-bismol. What? Pepto-bismol. Yeah. Pepto-bismol itself is a corporate entity. And that's a healing word. Just saying Pepto-bismol. I feel better me... already. Yeah. I it's know. It's a great word. If it is a word, it might be more of kind of a phrase. But it's um, whatever indigestion is it's in part private personal i mean that's sort of my image of what the the consciousness raising groups that the early feminists were using that i think she's kind of referring to a lot in this essay about how feminism was oral originally and uh, and and kind of you know wasn't academic and it was very personal and I think people just found that all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, for example, uh, women, if you have a personal problem, you have to go to the doctor. Uh, a medical problem, if it's severe enough, then you go to the doctor. You have a whole set of experiences with with the doctor that that are somewhat similar to other women's experiences with doctors. So I think you can start anywhere. I don't know, just my guess. You know, it doesn't have to purely necessarily be a social uh, condition, a social pain. It can be any pain, and it will lead you, if you have the right analysis, right theory, it will lead to to a collective experience. And you see, mm. we, we do live in an age uh, where uh, I would say pain has been privatized. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, where it's expressed in the uh, the confines of the the therapeutic consulting room or in the uh, you know the doctor's office, um, and what she's calling for is a, a is a public expression of it. That's it's it's just it just occurred to me. That's interesting. Mm. I think that's why I um, mentioned AA. People getting together and opening up on this level. I guess you're not supposed to do that in capitalism, right? <laughs> That's a good well, I think um, one thing, you know, a quote uh, early on in the essay that I think uh, in part sort of touches on that um, is where she's talking about her early experience. And then she writes, as a child, I didn't know where I had come from. And when I was not desperately seeking to belong to this family community, remembering she had six brothers and sisters. There were seven children. Mm -hmm. 
belong to this family community that never seemed to accept or want me. I was desperately trying to discover the place of my belonging. I was desperately trying to find my way home. Um, mm. I, I find that very interesting. And that idea of of finding where you come from, finding your home. I mean, it reminds me of Augustine, um, who speaks of um, traveling, you know, of a traveler, uh, you know, going off to some distant land. And then into the mind of that traveler is introduced the, the notion of home and of going home. I want to go home. And at that point, every all of his experience is directed toward that arrival, toward that goal, and no longer makes any kind of particular impression on this traveler anymore. His focus is purely on going home, getting back mm. home, mm. which he uses as a, an analogy to um, opening of a divine impulse or um, consciousness in yourself and wishing to return to, uh, you know, God. Um, yeah, wishing to return to God. And that no longer does this experience that we have um, particularly matter. It's just trying to get to that divine union. Um, that's all that uh, that registers. And so maybe that is also a part of the pain is the separation from our origin is mm. the separation from our originality and that introducing the understanding of where we come from of what we are where we come from is is also an act of healing yeah rem you know, a theologian comes to mind whose work um, has been very influential to me, and that is the work of Paul Tillich, who I've mentioned before, I know. But Paul Tillich wrote this book. Mm. It's out of print. It's, it, entitled, it's entitled um, The Shaking of the Foundations. Mm. Uh, maybe it came out of the 1930s or 40s. Um, maybe definitely not the 50s. I think it was the 40s. And in it, there's a chapter on sin and grace as foundational concepts in Christian theology. And he defines sin as estrangement, mm. um, as a pain-inducing estrangement from three centers. Uh, estrangement from one another, so a social estrangement. Estrangement from um, oneself. So internal mm. estrangement and estrangement from um, the ground of our being, which uh, for him is a, um, a metaphor, metaphoric language for God or some origin, some um, state of absolute connection. Uh, and he defines grace uh, conversely as the, the unity or the reunion, the overcoming of that estrangement, which um, makes the hurt go away that uh th those moments of grace uh when we feel radically connected mm -hmm. to something that uh, we have been severed from or uh, something we lost it's a homecoming it's a 
you know, a joining, a rejoining, a regathering. Mm. Would you call that a, a act of self-recovery? Sure, I think that's part of it. Yeah, because Bell Hooks writes, when our lived experience of theorizing is fundamentally linked to processes of self-recovery, of collective liberation, no gap exists between theory and practice. Well, there you go, right? It actually maps out onto the, the Paul Tillich or vice versa, albeit with different nomenclature in a pretty uh, uncanny way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. It leaves me feeling hopeful. <laughs> Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes, or suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those. As we are to donations to our enterprise, please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.